0: For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. There are some parts of Scripture that are strange. And there are some parts that are really strange and kind of difficult. And tonight is one of those kinds of passages. My job as a Bible teacher sometimes it involves explaining passages like these. So I'm going to do my best, and I hope you guys will stick with me. And maybe if there are lingering questions, maybe we can talk some more afterward, either me or with people you showed up with, and I can also recommend some reading as well on this. The days of Noah, starting in Genesis chapter 6, and we've been studying through the book of Genesis, very ancient history here. We see that God created humans perfect, but he warned them, sin will bring death, and they, they turned away from God, they rebelled against him, and it, and it shattered humanity, it brought death into the world, it shattered this, this, this world, and it spawned this society we saw last time together, a society where most of it was wandering far away from God. We saw extremely long-lived people, and we talked about how that could be possible. But what we see is a, a moral decay of society here, and that's what Genesis 6 starts with. It it's just finished telling us about one good strand descended from Adam and Eve. And God had promised that he's going to send a promised one someday who's going to deal with evil, who's going to deal with the problems that humans have introduced into this world. But by the time we get to Genesis chapter 6, we see there's one line and there's a guy named Noah that's born at the end of Genesis chapter 5. And these are the conditions when Noah came into the world. He says, when human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married or literally took any of them they chose. The sons of God and the taking the daughters of humans. Come back to that in a moment. (laughs) And then Yahweh said, my spirit will not contend with humans forever for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. What does this mean? Some people see this as God is saying, look, conditions are getting so bad and we'll learn we'll he'll talk a little bit more about that in a few verses. The, the society is breaking down so badly, things are so violent, people are, are so far from God that these long lives are not helping. And so he's either saying, I'm going to limit lifespans to 120 years, and we talked about some factors last week that may have shrunk human lifespans down to what they are today. What this could also mean, though, is 120 more years, countdown, to when I am going to bring a solution to this problem, a judgment into this world. Either one would fit with the text that follows. And then he says, the Nephilim were on earth in those days, and also afterward. What are Nephilim? (laughs) They're mentioned two different places in the Bible here, and Numbers 13. These are actually one of several races of giant humans in the Old Testament. The Anakim, the Raphaim. We learned about guys like Goliath, who are massive. Uh, These are not just tall humans, okay? These guys are 9, 10 feet tall. A, a normal human skeleton just simply could not support that. And um, the Nephilim apparently were some sort of um, race of giants. He says, we're on the earth. It's possible these Nephilim are the historical core that spawned the demigod legends. Uh, a lot of you know Greek, Greek mythology, for example, has your Hercules, and different religions have demigods and stories like that. It's possible that there's a historical core to those stories. But it says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. So again, this business with the sons of God and the daughters of humans. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. What is this? What is he talking about? Sons of God, daughters of men, and Nephilim? Well, there's different theories as to what's going on here. One theory is this. Some say the godly line of Seth that we learned about last time was marrying non-believers from the world because they thought they were hot. And so God was like, this is not cool. You should just marry godly people. I don't know if the language really works too well with that. I'm also not sure how it ties in with Nephilim. (laughs) Some say, this one's a little more common, that these powerful rulers, sometimes the king was called a son of God. They were just taking whoever they wanted as a wife. So it's sort of polygamy on a large scale. Kaiser, for example, argues for this in his book, Hard Sayings of the Bible. That's possible. Again, I don't quite see how it ties in with Nephilim. Maybe. But when you read the New Testament, which I think is like the best commentary on the Old Testament it points to something more sinister than either of these two explanations. Let me explain. In the New Testament and in the Old, we learn about demons. These are fallen angels. Satan is like the head of the fallen angels. And we learn that some demons are free to roam the earth. Satan prowls about like a roaring lion, 1 Peter says. On the other hand, other demons are locked up for doing something really bad. For example, Jude 6 says angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So angels, they did not keep their own domain, and now they are locked up. Peter agrees. He says, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but he cast them into pits of darkness, he says. Check out Luke 8.31. This is in the life of Christ. He comes up on this guy who's demon-possessed. And these demons start begging Jesus, do not command us to go away into the abyss, Luke 8.31. What are they talking about there? There's this place called the abyss, apparently, where Jesus could have sent them if he wanted to for what they had done. They were afraid that Jesus would command them to go there. These demons that are locked up, it appears, will not be released until the end of the world. Revelation chapter 9, it says the key of the abyss was given to this this angel, and he opened the abyss, and a lot of bad stuff comes out. The end times are not a time when you want to be around. And so we've got demons locked up until the very end of the world when they'll be released again during the most wicked time ever in the history of the human race. So what was the sin of these angels that caused them to be locked up? It looks like when you put the pieces together, I think the evidence points to this right here, fathering human children. How did they do that? Maybe by taking on human form, possibly. Angels can show up as dudes, eat and drink, maybe these just took it too far, or by possessing humans to such an extreme degree that it produced modified offspring. That's possible as well. That would, that would explain a little bit more why the human race is being judged. This is just one reason, why, uh, uh, an example of the wickedness here and how bad things had gotten, but it's possible. You know, occult sexuality is maybe what this was, and... Uh, God puts an end to this. Um, there are a handful that show up after the flood. We don't know where they came from. Maybe a few angels did this again. Um, but they never show up after the time of King David. So <clears throat> there's our first difficult problem here in this passage. That's, that's the best I can do with it right there. Back to Genesis 6. Genesis <laughs> 6. He says, Yahweh saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth. He looks down and he just sees this is terrible. That every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Every, only, all. These are extreme words describing society. This sounds like the worst time in the history of the human race. Possibly surpassed only by the period of time right before the end of the world. And it says Yahweh regretted, or some translations say he was sorry that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. Okay, don't other passages say God is not one who's going to lie or change his mind? How does this fit with our picture of God? Well, what this is saying is God was sad about how far the cancer of sin had spread. He just saw this has completely permeated the whole thing. This is not what I created humans to be. And he was sad. Yes, God is a God that feels emotions. And any conception of God, sometimes theologians come up with a God that's not allowed to feel things, because he's perfect. That's just not the God that the Bible presents. This is an example of God's emotions. His heart was deeply troubled. And so he decided on a new course of action. You know, some translations say God repented that he made human beings. No, what it's saying is God decides on a different course at this point. And it doesn't mean that God didn't know that this was coming. Just because God knew something was going to happen doesn't mean he can't still be sad about it. The Bible presents a God that knows the future. And just because you, you know something's going to happen doesn't mean that you're not going to be emotionally affected by it when it does. I mean, you're watch a sad movie a second time, you know, you feel sad the second time you watch it, even though you know where things are headed. It's because you're watching it unfold. And so God, he's just so sad that things have come to this. And now he's got to do something so unpleasant. He's going to have to do what he says in verse 7. Yahweh said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created. Wipe out all humanity. And with them the animals, the birds, the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret, that's that same word, I'm sorry that I've made them. We look at this and we just wonder, how could God do such a thing? What kind of monster is this? This is not a popular teaching right here. This is not, not something I would have come up with. But here it is. We've got to deal with it. You know, really the question is not how could God do such a thing, but really the question I think that we're really grappling with is this. Does God have the right to judge the human race? A couple of points that have been helpful for me as i thought about this question. First of all, God made the human race. In fact, it says right in this verse, I'm going to wipe out the humans that I have created. And so we never would have had life in the first place without him. That that entails a certain amount of sovereignty. He can do what he wants. He's made us. We never deserved to live in the first place. And yet he created us. He also warned from the beginning that sin brings death. He didn't want things to get to this point. He gave us free choice. We turned away from him. And he didn't just wipe them out instantly. You know, he's let people live, and yet they're living with the effects of sin. They're dying. Everyone's dying here. It was one of the refrains of Genesis 4 and 5 we saw last time. And so he warned, this is what's going to happen. He told told the first humans ahead of time. Also, our choices affect nature. You know, why would the animals be affected as well? Well, sometimes it affects... I mean, we saw how the original fall of humans affected nature, right? This one's going to as well. The the method God's going to bring, which is a flood, is going to affect not just humans, but also other land creatures in the area where humans are living. God is shortening both human and animal lives to accomplish a greater good here. Think about it. All these people, they were going to die anyway right? These animals were going to die anyway. What he's doing is he's shortening their lives. You know, maybe they would have lived X number of years, and he's he's cutting that in half. And that's not something he does very often. This is is the worst judgment we ever see God level in in the scriptures, by far, except for the ones that Jesus talks about are going to happen at the end of human history. But what he's doing is he's shortening human lives, and, and the shortening of your physical life is not the worst thing that can happen to you. God wants us to look beyond just this this life because there's an eternal life waiting for you on the other side. And so I guess he had his reasons here where he thought this, this is the course of action that I've decided to take. And let's not forget this fifth point. God is patient and he's willing to save anyone who will listen. You know, is that a warning? 120 years? He's going he's to send a guy. And to get out of this judgment is not going to be hard. It's going to be quite simple for anyone who's willing to humble themselves and to listen to him. You know, even the very next verse after this one, what does it say? But Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Noah found grace. God went out and found the one guy who was willing to listen to him and he brought him into his confidence and he warned him about what was going to happen. And he gave him a way out, a way that anyone could have taken. What about this question? Did God really flood the whole world? That's a question that even, even Christians debate, but I know it's also a, something a lot of us are pretty, pretty skeptical about. We have you know children's tales, like a big picture of an ark with giraffes head sticking out of the top. Well, I don't have time to get too deep into this. I'll I'll make a few points on this. For one, a lot of Christians argue for a a worldwide flood. Based on, for example, the language, it talks about all the world, everything under the heavens. And um, I think that, that probably fits a little better with the text. There are scientific problems that are debated and discussed at length. That's why others, based on the scientific problems, have a reading of these next couple chapters that argues for a local flood. A flood that doesn't cover, you know, the entire world, the Poles, Antarctica, Australia, Hawaii, but just the part where humans are living. Remember God said, be fruitful and multiply, spread out. And he keeps having to try to get them to spread out, and they don't really want to spread out. And so um, whether local or worldwide flood... Both camps agree that the flood would have covered the entire inhabited world and would have left only Noah and his family from the human race. The flood would at least need to f- spread as far as humanity had spread. We may You'll notice along the way a few points that maybe are problems for each camp on this. Um, if you want to read more on this, Gleason Archer has a, a pretty even article. He leans a little bit. He leans toward the worldwide flood. But he also talks to about the scientific problems with it. That's in his survey of Old Testament introduction. I imagine we saw that out here. That's a classic. Hugh Ross lands pretty heavily on a local flood in his book, uh, Navigating Genesis 1-11, through that I've quoted from a couple of times here. He's got a few chapters on this. He gets really into the scientific problems with this, with this worldwide flood. But um, I'm not sure it matters that much, personally. I'm pretty split on this. Worldwide versus local. But definitely, it would have had to cover the entire habited world, leaving only Noah and his family. Here's a point. Jesus believed the flood was a real event, and that Noah know it was a real guy. That's pretty persuasive for me. If he's really God the Son, then I would want to listen to his view on things. And he talks about this multiple times in his teachings. Not a legend, according to him. This is a real event. There's also something that even... Um, People that study religions have noticed is that religion after religion after religion all seem to have some sort of story about a flood. Here's Hugh Ross. He says more than 200 distinct flood stories exist in the lore of ancient civilizations, just like creation stories. The majority of these mention a large vessel that saved the human race from extinction. And the abundance of these flood stories would seem to point to something more than just a widely shared fantasy. It suggests the memory of some unprecedented flood catastrophe was etched in the minds of ancient peoples. One explanation connects these flood accounts with a common source. Check this out. As with creation accounts, we see faint traces of a trend. Typically, the greater the story's distance, both in time and geography, from Mesopotamia which is right there um, where this would have happened, the greater the distortion relative to both the biblical account and the established facts of nature. So he points out, the closer they are geographically to Israel, to where Noah and his family would have been, the closer they are to the biblical account, the further out you get, the more variations that they have while still preserving a, a basic common core. That, in my opinion, points to a shared memory Why would hundreds of cultures all over the world independently make up similar flood stories? But if the Bible's right and humanity was whittled down to a single family and then spread back out again, well, that would would give a pretty plausible explanation for that. Gleason Archer talks about this. This is that book I've talked about earlier. He kind of talks for a little while. He's like, you know, maybe we can explain the flood stories of Israel's neighbors as borrowing from one another. But then he's like... But what shall we say of the legend of Manu preserved among the Hindus? According to which, Manu and seven others were saved in a ship from a worldwide flood. What about Fahi among the Chinese who understood that he was the only survivor along with his wife, three sons, and three daughters? What about Nuu among the Hawaiians? Or Tespi among the Mexican Indians? Or of Manabazo of the Algonquins? What about those flood stories all over the world, different continents? All these agree that all mankind was destroyed by a great flood, usually worldwide, as a result of divine displeasure at human sin, and a single man with his family or very few friends survived the catastrophe by means of a ship or raft or a large canoe of some sort. (laughs) Among some, such as the aborigines of the Andaman Islands and the Bay of Bengal and the Bataks of Sumatra— it was a very high mountaintop which furnished the vital refuge for the lone survivor. But otherwise, the main outlines of the legend follow the basic structure of the Genesis account. The Curanai, a tribe of Australian Aborigines, the Fiji Islanders, the natives of Polynesia, Micronesia, New Guinea, New Zealand, New Hebrides, the ancient Celts of Wales, the tribesmen of Lake Cowdy and the Sudan, the Hottentots, and the Greenlanders. The Greenlanders! They all have their traditions of a universally destructive deluge which wiped out the entire human race except for one or two survivors. So there's a few points on could and did this really happen, as well as a few things you could read to explore further. Now let's look at the story here as told in the scriptures. He says, this is the account of Noah and his family. That's, that's Genesis clue. We're starting a new section. This is the account of, these are the generations of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless or complete, having integrity among the people of his time. And he walked faithfully with God. We learned three things about Noah, all good. It doesn't mean that he was perfect. We're going to see he had sin. It's going to recount one of those later on. Uh, What it means is he walked with God. That's why he was considered righteous. He was talking with God, listening to God. He was a man of faith, according to the New Testament, and it's it's clear here from the Old Testament as well. He walked with God, he had a, a vibrant personal relationship with God. He had three sons Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. Corrupt, corrupt, corrupt. Things had gone so bad. And so God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Some translations say gopher wood. The word is not really known what it means. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. So There's rooms in this ark. It's also coated on the out and the inside, probably just the hull. The floors would have gotten pretty sticky if they coated those with pitch. It would have been unnecessary as well to put tar on every floor in the ark. And this is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide and 30 cubits high. Now, what's a cubit? About a foot and a half. So that's about 450 feet by 75 feet wide by 45 feet high. He says, make a roof, leaving below the roof and opening one cubit high all around. So a roof with maybe some sort of a window along the top that was covered, sheltered from the rain. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. Uh, It might have looked something like this. This would have been a feat unequaled before modern times. Nobody ever built a ship this big until the 20th century. Although, you know, one thing is this barge just had to float. This is a barge, all right? Its goal was to hold a lot of stuff and stay upright. It didn't have to sail anywhere. They didn't have to turn a profit. This was purely for survival And you didn't even have to build it in the water or transport it to the water. You just had to build it on land, and the water was going to come to you. (laughs) To get a sense for the size, there's a football field. So if you could run to the end of the ark and back, and you'd have 300 yards rushing. (laughs) 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 Big. It's big. All right. God says, I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. This is repeated over and over again. Life, everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, Noah, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. Eight people. A covenant. It's the first time in Scripture we see God make a covenant. It's the first time we see the Word. He makes a covenant. He makes a deal with Noah. A covenant is where both parties, often where both parties have commitments they make and condition, and, and things that they're going to do and parts of the bargain they're going to come through on. Some covenants, it's just God decides to make a covenant. It's one way. This one had two parts. God's part Bring the flood and save Noah. God says, that's what I'm going to do. Do you trust me? Noah's part, God says, well, first of all, build the ark. That was no small task. Get on the ark. That was a lot easier than building the ark. And I'll just pause here to say, God wants to make a covenant with you too. God's got a covenant that Jesus called the New Covenant. And he says, under this covenant, I'm the ark, Jesus says. He says, judgment is coming, far worse than in the days of Noah, believe it or not. He talks about the days of Noah as a picture of what he's going to bring someday. Everybody's like, oh, the God of the Old Testament was so mean, and the God of the New Testament is so nice. No, same God. Jesus talked in more extreme terms about judgment than than we read about in the Old Testament. But he says... My death on the cross is what will pay for your sins. And that is how you escape the coming disaster that's going to wipe out all humanity. He says, instead of getting on the ark, Jesus says, you need to get on to me, and I will carry you through. He's the only one. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so Noah needs to get on the ark. He also needs to bring some animals and food. God's going to tell him about that. He says, you're to bring to the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. How's he going to catch all these creatures? Well, he says, two of every kind of bird, every kind of animal, every kind of creature that moves along the ground, they will come to you. You don't need to run around catching them. (laughs) Someday, animals are going to start showing up, Noah. God's going to send them. And that's how you know the time is near, I guess. (laughs) You know, under a a global flood, they would have had to come from pretty far away to get on the ark. You're to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away. as food for you and for them. You're going to need to eat. They're going to need to eat. Global flood proponents, what they have is, like, you know, a horse-like pair getting on the ark, and then that evolving into the different sorts and types of horses, even zebras and things like that that we see today. A cat-like pair that sort of evolves into the cats that we see today. So there would have to be some sort of supernatural turbocharged evolution after getting off the ark. If God is the God that created the heavens and the earth, he can surely bring a flood and do any, anything else necessary to make it happen. But they're going to need food, not just food for while they're on there. They're probably going to need some food for like the first year after they get off the ark. Because what are they going to eat? And it says Noah did everything just as God commanded him. That's a refrain in this as well. Noah's simple faith. He's like, okay, I'll do it. And so in faith, Noah became a shipbuilder and a preacher. Second Peter says he was a preacher of righteousness. Yeah, he's not just going to build this ark. He's going to be telling people, guys, turn to God. The end is coming. Get on the ark when it's ready. Help me build it. Nobody listened. How long did it take to build? It doesn't tell us. Some people say he built for 100 years. That's that's a misreading of the text. It says he was 500 years old when he had his first kid. He was 600 when the flood came. And so that's where people get that 100-year number. But it would have taken a long time to build an ark of that size. What was this like for Noah? Here he is, far from any body of water. He's working hard, cutting down trees, shaping them, fitting them together. You know, I'm sure there, there were times where things got busy and he couldn't, get, he couldn't do it for a little while. There may have been setbacks. There may have been building mistakes. If it's like when I build stuff, you get halfway done, you're like, oh man, I forgot to do that. You got to take some stuff apart. You got to put it back together. You learn as you go. I don't know what his family thought. I mean, if his dad, Lamech, was, if that was his dad and he was still alive, he was probably helping. He lived until five years before the flood, if those are consecutive genealogies. Methuselah, if that was his grandpa, if, that, if he's consecutive as well, he actually died the year the flood came. So he would have had maybe some help from those guys. His kids probably helped. But you got to wonder if they doubted him. They're like, "You why are you spending your life on this crazy project? You're not like other people. You're not pursuing the things they're pursuing." What was it like for his neighbors just watching Noah year after year working on this ark? Mocking him, I'm sure. He's probably looking pretty dumb to the rest of the world. Pretty dumb up until a a point when he didn't look so dumb after all. He's living by faith here. He's trusting God enough to act. That's what he's doing here. He's not a superhero. He's just a guy that trusted God and everything else followed from there. And then Yahweh said to Noah, "Go go into the ark, Noah. The day came you and your whole family, because I found you righteous in this generation, and take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, one pair of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate. So is it two or is it seven? Well, these are the, these are the clean animals. And also some birds. Seven pairs of every kind of bird. The clean animals would have been used for sacrifice. Apparently they knew something about clean and unclean back then. And the birds... Um, Maybe for sacrifice also they're actually going to be used to sort of go and gather information at the end of this whole thing to see if if the land is dry yet. It's to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. And then he says, seven days from now I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I've made. And so it's down to the final week. He says, get on and start gathering the animals onto the ark. The final week. What would you do? How would you respond to this news? The world will end in one week. Really puts things into perspective, doesn't it? How did the neighbors respond to this news? Well, the same as they always did. Here's what Jesus says. He says, The coming of the Son of Man will be like the days of Noah. It's talking about his second coming, Jesus'. He says, As in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. And so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Yeah, I mean, these things are not bad. Eating and drinking, I do that all the time. I did it today. Marrying, I'm married. Giving in marriage. I mean, these are, these are things that you do. These are good things. But the problem was, they were doing only these things. And they weren't thinking about what God was doing. And they were spending their lives with the vertical blinders on, just looking around horizontally. And they weren't considering God's perspective, God's will for my life. They were preoccupied with the world. Seven days from now, I'll send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and I will wipe from the face every creature I've made. And so Noah did all that Yahweh commanded him. He gets the animals onto the ark. He was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Pairs of clean and unclean animals, birds, all creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark just as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, boom, the floodwaters came. On the earth, In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, he didn't forget that day. On that day, the springs of the great deep burst forth and the floodgates of the heavens were open. So where did all the water come from? Well, it came from above, but it also came from below. There was some subterranean water here pouring in it's like the fire hydrant is just released and the water is blasting out on a level that had never been seen before and rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights so here's days one through 40 it was just rain water was coming from both directions for 40 days and 40 nights And on that very day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with his wife and the wives of his three sons, entered the ark. They had every kind of wild animal, all livestock according to their kinds, every creature that moves along the ground, according to its kind, everything with wings, they did what God said. Pairs of all creatures that have the breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. The animals going in were male and female, just like God commanded him, very precisely following God's instructions. And then Yahweh shut him in. They're standing there and the rains are coming and the water is starting to rise. Are they wondering what are we going to do? And then all of a sudden, the door is shut. I don't know if Noah could have physically shut the door. I also don't know if he could have had the heart to do that. Our job is not to shut the door. Our job was to declare the door. God is the one who decides when time is up. And I beg of you, get onto the ark before the time is up. The door is open. It's standing there, open. Will you humble yourself and come to Christ? Ask for his forgiveness. Yahweh shut the door. For 40 days, the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark so the thing can float. I don't know if they were wondering. (laughs) It's been a couple of decades on this thing. hope we didn't miss anything. But that starts, it starts to creak, and it starts to rise up off of the ground. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. That's a problem for the local flood. It's really got to be taken from the perspective of Noah, as far as the eye could see. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits, 22 feet. Every living thing that moved on land, perished, birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth, and all mankind. And so the flood is doing what God sent it to do. It's wiping out life. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, and you can see why. This is not pleasing to him. He'll do it. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days, so we're up to 150 days now. Looks like the rain stopped after day 40, but these waters continued to cover everything for five months. But then... It says in 8.1, God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. Now, God remembered, all right? It's not like, it's not like God forgot. It's not like God's sitting there watching TV and he's like, man, I feel like I forgot something. I left the flood on. Oh, I can't believe I did that. No, this is another one of those where they kind of use, it's called anthropomorphism. They use human language to talk about God in ways we can understand. What what it means when it's used in Scripture is this. God decided it's finally time to act on his promises. And this is the hope in the time of Noah, and this is the hope for us as well, is that God will come through on his promises. So God sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. It almost feels like Genesis 1 again, where you've got the water everywhere and the Spirit of God over the waters. Either some sort of evaporation under a local flood, it would be kind of pushing the waters out, I guess. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. So the, the rain had stopped and the underground stuff had stopped. And the water receded steadily from the earth. At the end of 150 days, the water Had gone down. It had gone down so far that on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. So here we are, day 150, five months in, they just feel this boom. And we're not moving anymore. (laughs) After rocking and moving for five months, we've stopped. On the mountains of Ararat. Now, most people, I always heard the ark was on Mount Ararat. Mount Ararat is one mountain in the middle of a large mountain range that stretches that far. So this dot is one possible place. If it might have landed in the lower parts of Ararat, the part where you couldn't see Mount Ararat. Um, some people, Christians are always like, "Man, where's the ark?" And they found the ark and things like that. I, I don't think people are going to find the ark. Personally, I mean, once, once the flood was over, they're going to need that wood for building, right? I mean, they didn't have the Home Depot back then. This <laughs> is like a free lumber yard. <laughs> so I imagine it would have been picked pretty clean. But the mountains of Ararat, it could have been anywhere in this area here. The waters continued to recede until the 10th month. And on the first day of the 10th month, the tops of the mountains became visible. This is day 224 on the ark. It almost reads like a diary, like a ship log. First day, 10th month, saw tops of mountains. And then 40 days after that, Noah opened a window he had made in the ark. I don't know if it was closed the whole time, but he finally gets to open it. It's probably getting pretty rank in that ark. <laughs> and so here he sends out a raven. And the raven just flew back and forth. Never came back. Maybe landed on the roof or something until the water had dried up from the earth. Day 264, that was the raven day. Also day 264, he sends out a dove. Maybe he'll have better luck with the dove to see if the water had receded. But the dove could find nowhere to perch because there was water all over the surface of the earth, so it returned to Noah in the ark. Oh, so sweet. Because if you love something, you set it free. <laughs> it's really a sweet picture here of Noah caring for the dove. Conservationist, truly. He reached out his hand, and he took the dove, and he brought it him, brought him back into the ark. Hey, little buddy. <laughs> He waited seven more days and again sent the dove out from the ark. Here you go. Day 271, dove dove, day number two. <laughs> and when the dove returned to him in the evening, oh, oh, look at there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf, which is today I, the, the symbol for peace. I don't know why. I guess maybe it's like the earth is regrowing. The judgment is done. And Noah knew the water had receded from the earth. Things were looking good. He waited seven more days, and he sent the dove out again. Dove day three, day 278. But this time, the dove did not return. His buddy didn't come back. (laughs) And by the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, the water had dried up from the earth. And then Noah removed the covering from the ark, and saw the surface of the ground was dry. Day 314. And by the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. Day 371. Now the ark has just been sitting in place since, since 150 days. So he's, they've been not moving for over 200 days. The earth's been dry for 45 days still he's in the ark. Now he's like, it's not just not wet anymore. It's like completely dried out at this point. And then God said to Noah, come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. I would have been itching to get out of there, but he stays on there. Why? Because God God told him to get on, and God hadn't told him to get off yet. I would feel a little nervous just getting off the ark, too, at this point. I don't know what God's got planned, But this is the point where you really want to listen to God and do what he says. He says, come on out, bring every living creature with you, birds, animals, the creatures that move along the ground, bring out the whole zoo so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. And so Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives. And all the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on land came out of the ark, one kind after another. And then, what's he do next? He built an altar to Yahweh. And taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. He offers up a sacrifice to God. And Yahweh smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long, and the ends with a poem. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, will never cease. And that's where we'll draw the line this week. Two lessons from the days of Noah in summary. First of all, we learn about the end times. Jesus drew this parallel on a number of occasions Peter does as well it's a time of moral decay temporal focus and skepticism people aren't thinking about God they're not thinking about the end they're not thinking about the next life they're skeptical of people that say that God is there and that God has a will for your life maybe this is how some of us are living we're not really thinking about God we're living for now eating and drinking and giving in marriage Not too concerned about spiritual things. It's also a time of waiting when people of faith may look dumb for a little while. Noah wasn't looking too smart until he was. And God will call us to wait for longer, possibly, than we ever imagined. But he says, I'm coming. I'm coming. And we learn about God's way of salvation. Just like in the days of Noah, the end is coming. There's only one way, one door, one ark, not multiple arcs, not multiple ways out. There's one. And Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And what he says is, guys, the door is open. And for you tonight, you've got to understand the door is open. And you're standing there looking at it, you're looking up the ramp, you're looking at the opening. God's not going to make you get on. He's giving you your free choice. So what are you going to do? That's the question you've got to decide. And that's the story of Noah. Yeah, Lord, this, is, um, this topic of judgment is, is not a pleasant one. I pray that tonight's study would help us to see our life for what it really is how short it is to see this world um, and its temporariness, Lord. We have life. We have possessions for a limited time to live for you. I pray for those of us who are Christians who are wasting our lives living for this world. I pray that we do that no longer, but that instead we would turn to you, begin to walk with you, begin to trust you. I know, God, that a decision like that is, is not going to be one that we regret. In eternity. I pray, too, for anyone who's not a Christian, Lord. I pray that they would not be able to get that image of that door out of their mind, Lord. I pray they would see themselves standing there with the decision before them, and I pray that even if the answer is no for now, that you'd remind them of that in the days and weeks and months and even years to come, and that you would remind them of your grace that you're offering, like the grace you gave Noah, and I pray that they would come onto the ark, come into Christ, And enter into that relationship. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.